Like many of you, I enjoy reading a good book. As I've mentioned to many of you before, one of the favorite types of book that I love to read are historical biographies, biographies of people, which my teenage daughters assure me is really embarrassing to admit to anybody out loud. Um, <laughs> to say that I love reading 600-page biographies of historical figures. To be fair, most everything I do is embarrassing to my teenage daughters uh, <laughs> at some point, but this ranks fairly high on the list of what they find embarrassing about me to admit out loud. That I can get pretty excited about an evening of diving into a 600-page biography on pretty much any historical figure. George Washington, Harriet Tubman, you name them. I just enjoy biographies. Now for any of the rest of you that enjoy a biography, you'll know that like most any book, a biography is divided into chapters. But the chapters are divided based on the season in the person's life that you're reading about. So when one sort of season of their life ends and a new season begins, that marks a chapter in their story. For instance, if we were reading a biography in George Washington, there would be a, a, a chapter devoted to his serving in the Continental Congress as he was a representative of Virginia. But the moment he was elected and selected to be the general in charge of the Continental Army, that marked what I was told after the 815 service is an inciting incident. It's a moment that ends one chapter of his story and you would have started a new chapter based on his time as general of the army. Does that make sense? That would have marked the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. I wonder if someone was writing a biography about your life, where would the chapters in your story stop? And where would a new chapter begin? If someone were writing a biography about your life, what are the inciting incidents? That moment that comes about saying one season, one chapter is finished and a new chapter in your story begins. I bet if you stop and think about it, uh, some of those moments are moments that you plan for. You know that a new season is starting. You've worked for a new season. Maybe you're starting a new job. Maybe you're starting uh, at a new uh, college. You're starting a new degree. Whatever it is, there are moments in our lives where new chapters begin, and we know that a new chapter is beginning. If you took in my journey uh, the moment where I was flying on an airplane, recently graduated from college, going to teach English in rural Japan for two years, I was aware in the moment a new chapter in my story was beginning. I didn't know what, the, what it was going to look like. I didn't know I was going to meet my wife over there. I didn't know that I would become a Christian in a house church in Japan run by two Norwegian missionaries while I was over there. But what I did know, it's a story for another time. And what I did know is that while I was sitting on a plane, a new chapter was beginning. I knew that whatever the next couple of years held, it wasn't just going to blend in with my senior year of college in North Carolina. I bet some of the chapters in your story begin in a planned and expected way. This is biblical, right? We looked in the fall at a series we entitled Rebuild at the figure of Nehemiah. 
And Nehemiah, we saw, had several different chapters, and he knew a new chapter in his story was beginning. For example, when we first encounter him, he's a cupbearer in the Babylonian court of King Artaxerxes, if you remember. But then the call comes to go and uh, to, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And there's a chapter of Nehemiah's story when that call comes that's about him figuring out the call and if it's real and how to do it. Then we would have seen a chapter end with that and a new chapter begin when he actually journeys to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah would have known as Jerusalem appeared and he had all the materials to rebuild the wall, he would have known this is a new chapter in my story. I don't know everything that's going to come in as I rebuild the wall, but I do know this is a new chapter in my story. I bet if you think of your life, there are certain chapters that end and certain chapters that begin and you knew it was happening in the moment. You planned for it, you expected it, you worked for it. There are other chapters that come out of left field. Chapters in our story that we didn't see coming, that surprise us when they begin. I remember being on one of our cohort retreats and during a break going back to our room, this was at a little retreat center um, outside of downtown, uh, outside of Houston and having several missed calls on my phone from my father. Now he had gone in for some tests for a persistent cough that he had, but when I called him back, I heard the words, the results have come in and it's pulmonary fibrosis. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but I was very clear of his following words, which is, it is terminal. I didn't see that coming from a persistent cough. But that was the beginning of a new chapter in my story. Certainly the beginning of a new chapter, the last chapter in my dad's earthly journey. But it began for me and my family a new chapter. It was a brand new chapter that we didn't anticipate coming, but it arrived. This is biblical as well. We see this, for example, in Advent, when uh, the angel Gabriel appears to an unwed teenage girl in the Galilee region of northern Israel and says, congratulations, you're going to have a baby. And she says, no, I'm not. And the angel goes, no, you are. And his name's going to be Jesus, and he's the Messiah of the world. And she says, I don't think so. And yet, this unexpected event marks the start of a new chapter in Mary's journey in Didi Dyer's. I bet if you think about your life, there are chapters that begin and you did not anticipate them. What are the moments, if someone was writing a biography of you, where one chapter ends and a new chapter begins? The scripture passage we're looking at today marks one of these turning points in the Gospels. It marks the end of one chapter in Jesus' life and ministry and the start of a new chapter. This is the inciting incident. This is the moment of change where Jesus goes from being a teacher and preacher and healer, primarily in the northern area of Israel, in the area of Galilee, a rural region, and Jesus' attention turns at this moment to Jerusalem, to the Passover, to the cross, and beyond. This is the moment where Jesus goes from teacher, preacher, healer, to savior, and to Messiah. And it's a moment that Jesus anticipates as a new chapter. It's a surprising one for the disciples that it's a new chapter. But it is a brand new chapter in the Jesus story that we get to encounter today. The text we're going to be looking at is from Luke chapter 9. 
starting in verse 28. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent in those days, told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've looked at this or studied this, if you were reading along in your pew Bible, you would have seen a little title above this. Uh, This section of scripture is commonly referred to as the transfiguration. Um, And it appears in three of the gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and as we just read here in Luke. And what's interesting is that in each of the gospels, it marks this turning point in the gospel stories. It marks this turning point from Jesus' teacher, preacher, healer, in a certain area of northern Israel to pointing himself and his followers and his movement towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. That's why almost every year that I can find in the liturgical calendar, one of these three gospel texts is always the passage, the gospel text in our lectionary for the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. Because it turns us on the journey that we recognize as Lent as Jesus moves to the cross. But make no mistake, this is a season where one chapter is ending and a new chapter as Messiah is beginning. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of strange stuff going on here. And so I want us to break this down into three segments just so that we have a clear sense of exactly what's taking place in this passage and why these things all are pointing to this new chapter in Jesus' story beginning. I'm going to bring the first one here up on the screen. Uh, And it says this, the first of these three sections is um, uh, verse 28, the first verse we read. And it says, Luke starts this section by saying, now about eight days after these sayings. Now, when you're reading the Bible and you read something like that, there should be an alarm bell going off in your head going, well, what happened eight days before? Because Luke is saying, you're not supposed to read this the way we're doing it today as a section just by itself. To understand this, you have to understand what the sayings were eight days ago. So what were they? I'm glad you asked. The first thing that we see here is that eight days before, this, is, this takes place eight days after feeding the 5,000. This is a time, again, in Galilee, when Jesus' crowds are growing, his popularity is growing, and there's about 5,000 individuals that are there, and they don't have anything to eat. And if you remember, Jesus takes some bread and some fish and miraculously is able to feed the crowds while he is teaching and healing. 
And after that moment, when the crowds start to disperse, what we see is that Jesus asks his disciples a question. He asks them, he says, who do the crowds think he is? Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples say to Jesus, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're another prophet who has returned. But what the crowds are saying is that you are someone who has passed on, who has come back. And then Jesus, we see in this last point, then asked the disciples, and who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter proclaims him as the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Messiah. Not Elijah, not John the Baptist, not one of the other prophets who's come back. It's the first time that Jesus is proclaimed as Messiah in the Gospel of Luke. And then Jesus afterwards does this teaching about how the Messiah is going to go and to suffer at the hands of the authorities. And those are the events that lead into the transfiguration. So Luke's saying, I want you to have all of that in mind to understand what's taking place here. They're connected. All right. Part two. So we keep moving. Verses 29 to 31. Uh, this is the next section where Jesus starts to pray. And this is where some of the stranger stuff starts to happen in this passage, right? Is that while he's praying, it says that he is transfigured. His face changes. And we see in the first uh, point that one of the most defining elements of this change is this dazzling light that kind of comes forth from him. Now, this is important because one of the things that we see throughout scripture and we see in the gospels is that there is this contrast of light and darkness and light signifies the divine. So this is why on Christmas Eve we light candles and we uh, hold them up as we sing Silent Night because we proclaim in the gospels that the light has come into the world and that the darkness cannot overcome it. This is what takes place with Moses that when he goes into the presence of God, his light, his face reflects that glory. And when he comes away from the presence of God, as we read in, in Exodus, as Jill read, there's this shining kind of sense in his countenance. But what's important in taking place here, as the disciples see that, is that it's not that everything is lit up, including Jesus, but that Jesus is the origin of the light. It is radiating out from him. And this is something that they would have and the first readers of the Gospels would have understood is a sign of his divinity. He is not just a prophet or a teacher or a preacher. He is different. Next, we see that he encounters Moses and Elijah as they're here. Now, someone asked at a Bible study I taught recently, he's like, how did, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah, right? Were they wearing name tags? <laughs> Did Moses come and introduce himself to him? It's like, hey guys, I lived like hundreds of years ago. You may not know who I am. Courts of Pharaoh, Red Sea, that's me, right? And here's the deal, I don't know. I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but the point is, it was Moses and it was Elijah who were there. And that has significance. Why is it significant? Well, first, as we read with Moses, Moses has an encounter, multiple encounters actually, on the top of a mountain where he comes into the presence of God. Here he is again on a mountain as part of encountering the divine. But what's also important about Moses, and I want you to see this, is that Moses is most importantly in the Old Testament known as the giver of the law. He is the one for whom the law, the Torah, comes into being. And when it talks about the Messiah in the Gospels, it says he has come to fulfill the law. 
And so what you have here is the one who has given the law, who symbolizes the law, looking at and focused on the person of the Messiah, just as was foretold. Okay? And then last, we have Elijah that's here. Now, Elijah is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And not only has the Messiah, stick with me here, I know this is a lot of stuff. Not only has the Messiah come to fulfill the law, but this, this gospel say the, the Messiah has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so now you have maybe the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament, just like Moses, focused in their attention on Jesus. And what are they talking about? Well, they're not talking about their golf game. They're talking about the fact that Jesus is pointed towards Jerusalem. That word is important. And it is going to Jerusalem that he will accomplish what he needs to accomplish. All of these things are important to what's taking place and why this is the start of a new chapter. Jesus is healer and teacher only to Jesus as Messiah and Savior. Last, we have, first off, we have this, and we keep this up. We have this weird interchange where Peter, and I, I kind of love Peter, because it's like he doesn't know what to do, so he just blurts this thing. I was like, should we build you houses? It's, it's totally random. And I, and, and I kind of in my head, and this might not be holy of me, but I kind of imagine the disciples like rolling their eyes at this point. It's like, would you just be quiet uh, and do this? It's like, ah, let's build you houses. And I can imagine kind of Moses and like, thanks for that. We're going to stay here talking about Jerusalem and what we're going to accomplish. But then we have these last two verses. And, uh, and this is one of two places a cloud envelops the three of them and the three disciples where God the Father speaks. The first, as we studied a few weeks ago, is during Jesus' baptism. And at that moment of Jesus' baptism, in the presence of John the Baptist, they all heard a voice that said, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Now, when this cloud envelops them, this second and final time that they're going to hear God the Father speak, there's a similar cadence to what God says, but with some important changes. Next point. This is my son, my beloved, changes to this is my son, my chosen. Now, it's not that chosen is more important than beloved, but it is more specific. God is clearly saying here that Jesus has a specific task, a chosen and appointed task to accomplish. And last, what we see in changes is from the baptism in whom I am pleased to listen to him, this command that comes from God. Now, what does that mean? I think at some level, and I appreciate this being up, we can take this slides down. I think when God says, listen to him, that's also saying like, listen to everything he said, listen to everything he's going to say. But also I think there's a meaning here that's saying, listen to what he is talking about with Elijah and Moses. They're not just having a random conversation. They are talking about this movement being pointed, going to Jerusalem to accomplish something that the chosen one alone can accomplish. Up until this point, it would have been possible for people to believe that this is just some teacher, some preacher, some amazing leader, some person. But this is the moment where things change. A new chapter begins with Jesus explicitly focused upon the task and the call that is only saved for the Messiah. Now that means something enormous for all of us. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote from Mere Christianity where I think he uh, talks about the implications of this. We're going to bring this up. He writes this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is the moment where the Messiah, the divinity of Jesus is clear and his mission is clear. And this is the passage that begins us on a journey to Lent. And not only does this start a new chapter in Jesus' story and ministry, not only does it start a new chapter in the disciples' ministry and life, but if we take it seriously for each and every one of us, when we realize that Jesus is Savior and Messiah, it starts a critical new chapter in each of our stories. Because Jesus has come into this world for more than just to give you some advice, to just give you some thoughts, to just give you some teachings, to just give you some lessons. And I don't mean to offend any of you, and I don't know all the things that go on in any of your life, but what the implications of this are clear is that you and I need more than just that. I wish that just having knowledge would perfect us. I wish that just having more teaching or more learning would perfect us, but there is something more profoundly broken in us for that. I know that's true for me. I'm not gonna give you up here a laundry list of reasons why I know that's true for me, but I can assure you, the people who love me can assure you that I am more broken than just teaching. For example, and this isn't the worst thing, but it has very real implications. I know that in the Gospels, what I'm called to do as a husband is to outserve my wife. I know that. I am aware of that knowledge. I have no indication of anything other than that's my call. There are just some days I don't want to. There are some moments where I know that that's accurate, I just don't do it. There are moments where I know as a father, the way I'm supposed to raise my kids is to reflect and to show God's glory to them. But here's the thing, there are moments that I just want them to go off on their phones and leave me alone. It's like, don't you wanna go like binge out on TikTok for a little while and just kind of like see that? I just, right now, I just need, and I'm not saying that's okay, and I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but I'm also pretty clear I'm not the only one here. We need more than just good teaching and advice. It's one of the wonderful things that's happening right now. We should know this as we're coming out of this pandemic. We have over 40 high schoolers that today are going through confirmation class. Isn't that amazing? Over 40 high school students that today are gonna to be taking the journey of professing their own faith. And one of the things that we're gonna be saying is that Jesus isn't following you, that we are following Jesus. That he is not here just to give you some nice advice so that you can get into a good college. That he has a plan for your life, but it's following him as savior because all of us, including those students, need saving. 
Need something more than just a little Jiminy Cricket, as my wife says on your shoulder, going, oh, this might what you want to think about. And I know we need that in our world, don't we? I mean, that's true every week, but man, this week. Because I thought it was my grandparents' generation that figured out not to have a major war in Europe, right? We, we learned that lesson, now we've improved. Right? Because once human beings and society have more knowledge, we just move up into the right. Right? Because I've been horrified, like you, at the tragedy that's unbefolding the Ukraine, of the crisis, of the evil that you see there. And yeah, we need to pray for the Ukraine. And I've seen a lot of people who have been posting that. We need to pray for the Ukraine. And we do. And we will today. Pray for the Ukraine. And I'm sure you have been. And I invite you to keep doing that. And yes, we need to be able to respond to the humanitarian crisis that's taking place there. And we should. But one of the ways that we're going to get at the root cause of what takes place when conflicts like this is to be able to also say to the world, haven't you figured it out yet? There is something more profoundly broken about us than Jesus just going, I've got some good teachings if you'll pay attention. If we take this journey of Lent seriously, if you go and check out the resources on our website, if you think about the things that you need to repent of, to drop, to let go of at Lent, it's going to become something more powerful than just saying, oh, I'm going to stop eating chocolate so that I can, you know, kind of be healthier. It's about saying, what do I want to let go of that's really keeping uh, uh, sin in my life? What are the things that I acknowledge in me that I need saving from? How do I seek to move away from that? How do I seek to move towards the person of Jesus? Not just following Jesus to Jerusalem going, I'll, I'll consider your teachings for my life. But how are we aware of the fact of how do I want to turn myself into the presence of the Messiah? And if we take this journey individually and if we take what is happening in our world seriously, we will see an ugliness to ourselves and in our world that will almost be embarrassing. But it's honest and it's there and it's true. But the transfiguration reminds us that the story doesn't begin with that brokenness and our need. The chapter starts with the realization that the one we truly need to save us has come. That he is not going to Jerusalem just to suffer, but to accomplish something. That he is not just teacher and advisor and preacher and healer, but he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Hallelujah. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that the fullness of this teaching, the fullness of this scripture, the fullness of who you are would wash over us and cleanse us all from the inside out. We pray this 
And in it, we pray that we would find hope and love, a love story that will sweep us off our feet. For we pray it in the name of our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Amen.